Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Car Stuff. And today, we're not going to talk about cars. Right. Yeah. Hey, guys. Sorry. Don't get too steamed at us. Uh, We like to talk about cars mainly. We also talk about other vehicles. Yeah. This is the stuff part. This is the stuff. Yeah. (laughs) This is the other stuff that we sometimes talk about. But you know what? Listener suggestion, and it is a mode of travel. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's uh, an important part of our history. Yeah, and it's a fascinating subject, and that's what we like as well. Important part of world history, really. Nice. Uh, because uh, the, you know, actually, you know what? Let's just get this out of the way real quick. Sure. This is a, a, a listener suggestion who uh, wrote to us on Facebook. Uh, her name is Regina. Mm-hmm. And Regina just mentioned, uh, how about an episode on blimps or other forms of surveillance from the air? Um, and attached a, an article about something about, uh, surveillance, um, over Afghanistan and how we're using blimps right now for military surveillance. Ah, uh, yes. And, you know, some of the, uh, the current, uh, I guess versions of what, of what we've, uh, seen in the past. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. You're Scott Benjamin and I'm Ben Bullen. That's right. We forgot that part. Why is that? Oh, we oh, just forgot yeah, to because, say that part. Oh, that's true. We always say that. And you know what? In the last episode, I think we were using our DJ names. Isn't that right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That so cool. DJ Bebo. Yeah, that's right. You were yeah, DJ uh, Vitamin B or – Vitamin B? Or was I – That's uh, a good one. Grandmaster B. That was it. <laughs> I don't yeah, something like that. Anyways. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> Airships. Yeah. All right. This uh, – I, I really enjoy this topic because uh, historically – Airships are a technology that see, that do in large part to the Hindenburg disaster mm-hmm. of 1937 have sort of lost their chance mm-hmm. in in the great competition to become a primary mode of human transportation. Yeah, there was a there was a point in history where um, you know 
travel by Zeppelins or travel by um, in these large, rigid airships that we'll sure. talk about. Um, and you'll know what that means later. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a big deal. It was kind of, uh, you know, the elite at the time were traveling that way. Yeah, it was the Concorde jet of its day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not not in speed, but it was uh, it was a luxurious. Um, it, was a, it was a fancy way to travel. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. It was uh, it was novel. It was uh, it was um, something that people uh, wanted to do, and people you know not clamored to do it and say like I have to get on the, uh, the sure. Zeppelin to get over here. But you know, it'd be interesting to be able to take a, a Zeppelin across the Atlantic, maybe. Right, and it had some uh, as was done, and it had some uh, tangible benefits mm-hmm. in comparison to, say, conventional air or land travel. Mm-hmm. It definitely had some cons. In yeah. fact, history sort of decided for a while that the cons outweighed the pros. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we'll we'll get to that. I yeah. promise we'll get to that mm-hmm. because, you know, everybody wants to talk about the Hindenburg and what it is right, 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 right. we'll that it was. We will do that. But uh, when you talk about, you know, air travel and airships, yeah. you have to go way back and we'll do this Got to go way back. Yeah, main, you know, kind of quickly, I guess. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the the development of these and how we got to that point because it's all tied together. It's very very closely related. You won't you won't believe how close uh, mm-hmm. zeppelins are to balloon travel and mm-hmm. the players involved and and how early on they were involved. It's and it's shocking, really. Now the cat's out of the parachute, as it were. Uh, we have to – if you want to talk about airships, you have to start with balloons. Yeah, hot air balloons. Now, hot air balloons are um, – ah, boy, I mean everybody's seen a hot air balloon. Mm-hmm. I mean that's no, that's no secret. You know what it's like now with the, the – uh, they call it a gondola that's below it. But it's a basket. Right. It's a mm-hmm. basket but that hangs below the, uh, the hot air balloon. Of course, it's, it's you know heated air that, that makes it rise or lower uh, – yes. rise or lower. Um, they weren't always this way. They were – I mean they were – They've been around since uh, 1780s. Mm-hmm. Um, 1783, as a matter of fact, September 19th, 1783. A couple of French guys, uh, scientists, and um, let's see, they they had a hot air the idea for a hot air balloon, and the first one that they launched. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over this because there's a couple of things that happened real close to here. Yes, um, the first hot air balloon wasn't even manned. It was just a, you know who the passengers were. Uh, According to eBalloon.org. <laughs> who were the passengers? <laughs> the passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. And now, and the, the thing stayed in the air for 15 minutes. Now, was this the one that uh, Jacques Etienne and Joseph Michael Montgolfier built? Oh no, the, no, the that's French uh, brothers. No, that's the like? that's the second one. That's the first. Ah, that's the first okay, man okay. balloon. Now this one is. Ah, uh, oh, boy, I knew you were going to try to make me. This is a scientist, a French scientist. Oh, you, uh, um, De Rosier. Ah, uh, yes, De Rossier. Yes. Jean Pelatre de Rossier. Much, much better than me. Okay? Are you so kidding? 1783, we're, French scientist. We're okay. so sorry for our French pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> now that we're on to the, uh, the one that Ben mentioned, these two yeah, guys, that, these two other French guys, these mm. brothers that, uh, that Ben mentioned, um, this is the first man balloon ride, and that's, that's only two months later. Uh, so this is in November of the same year of 1783, mm-hmm. and uh, they they launched from the center of Paris and they flew for 20 minutes, which is pretty good. And it had to be just white knuckle the oh. whole way. Yeah, I don't you know about you being the first one to uh, to actually ascend in one of these things. How scary that must have been. No one's ever seen the Earth from that high up at that point. You know, from mm. from a man made vehicle like that. There is now. I will just give a voice to. The allegations, there is uh, a group of people who 
have theorized that the Nazca lines and, and those other very large sculptures mm-hmm. um, in the ground on on the American continents uh, were actually constructed to be viewed from a balloon. But at this point, there's not any scientific there's there's not any scientific basis to this. It's a That's theory. Interesting. Ballpark. What time? What time were those created? Do you know? Uh, I do not have that. Okay, I sorry, I didn't numbers. mean to catch yeah, you with yeah, that, but no, no. yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I had never heard that, that they were meant to be viewed from a balloon. Well, I look. I've heard this, and to be honest with you, Scott, I think this might be a case of people just coming up with ideas to try to explain things. Oh, I see. Let's keep in mind that another way people have tried to finger quote. You see, I'm doing the finger yeah, quotes here. Finger quote explain the Nazca lines was by saying they were like runways for alien spaceships. Yeah, so I've heard that too. They, and as you might be aware, they don't have any proof for that one either. No. Okay, but because the, there's no, you know, like runway landing towers or anything like that. Air traffic controllers at the time, um, <laughs> hiring them was difficult. Yeah, the unions yeah. and you know. oh, the unions, the Nazca okay. unions. So we know but, why that didn't work. But these are verifiable. Mm-hmm. Manned balloon flights. Yeah, that's right. And, and, uh, just two years later, 1785, there's another French balloon. This is Fr- the French are really into this. They're, these, they're uh, balloons, pioneers. Right? Yeah. Um, he takes an American co-pilot named John Jeffries and they become the first to fly across the English Channel, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's what they call the first long distance ballooning, I guess, because, you know, they're not really controlling it. This is, uh, they're, they're controlling maybe height, you know, with the, uh, the air that's in the, the balloon. Right, and, and but they're the, at the mercy of the wind. And the pattern. counterweight that they've got. Yeah, exactly. They're at the mercy of the wind, okay? Um, now, the same year, uh, the world's first balloonist, the guy that went up in, in the balloon the first time, yes. uh, unfortunately killed uh, trying to cross the same channel. So this was a dangerous thing at this point. Now, this mm-hmm. is 1785, so we're talking early, early in balloon history. Yes. Um, it wasn't until 1793 uh, that another Frenchman... Uh, Jean-Pierre Blanchard came to uh, he came over to the United States, was the first one to fly a balloon in North America, and interestingly enough, George Washington was on hand to watch the balloon fly. Wow! I know. So that gives you an idea of you know the, the ballpark of the time we're talking about, yeah, how yeah. early on balloon travel was possible, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it made relatively small jumps here and there, but you know mm-hmm. crossing the channel was a big deal. Sure. They did that. Later, um, later in history, and I'm, I'm going to jump way ahead, and then we'll go back. Okay, gotcha. Um, but later for balloons, because we're not going to talk much about balloons. We'll get past these. Right, right. Um, right. There's the uh, in 1978, the Double Eagle II became the first balloon to cross the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1981, there was the Double Eagle V, which uh, launched from Japan and landed in California. So that one's the first one to cross the Pacific, and that wasn't until 1981. I mean, so, Pacific's a big ocean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're talking like 200 years later after the yeah. development of the balloon that they're they're crossing the Atlantic and crossing the Pacific. So um, it's a big deal. Richard Branson was in on that one. Richard Branson is, you know, I'm I'm waiting. I know one day we are most likely going to do a podcast on some amazing innovation that yeah, he has Branson, made. Well, Branson, he was in 1987. He crossed the Atlantic in a hot air balloon. That's uh, awesome. But it was filled with, uh, let's see. Uh, was it helium? Um, something like that. Hang on a second. Well, anyways, it, Branson was in 80, 87, not in 81. Okay. But he did cross the Atlantic. And now we'll, we'll go back a little, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, let's, uh, let's go back because one of the things that our, um, our Facebook, uh, listener wanted to make sure that we mentioned was the Civil War balloons. Ah, yes. The Civil War balloons. Yeah. Okay. 
So beginning in the United States at the time of the Civil War, we're looking at a fellow named Thaddeus S.C. Lowe. Mm-hmm. And Thaddeus S.C. Lowe worked extensively with balloons. He had a camp set up uh, that was wholly occupied with manufacturing and improving balloon technology during the Civil War. Yeah, he founded the uh, U.S. Balloon Corps, which is uh, – I mean – I, I just – I'll be honest with you. Until we were reading this, I, I didn't even think of this. I knew they used balloons, but I didn't know they had an entire division or sector set up to develop and build these balloons. That also caught me by surprise. In the context of the time, it makes sense. But nowadays, you would never think balloon core. Yeah, I know. It's strange, isn't it? I mean, as far back as Civil War time. Mm-hmm. Strange. But, um, you know, it had great purpose. Yeah, and great great use yeah. in the uh, in the – military theater because it had this sort of unprecedented surveillance ability. Mm-hmm. And well, I, okay. Yeah, Cause you're not going to fly over the battlefield and see what the enemy's doing. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to get any higher vantage point than say the tallest tree in the area. Yeah. So what are you going to do? You're going to fly up in a balloon, right? You're going to, you're going to just from your own camp, you're going to go up high as you can and uh, kind of scout around What's coming at you over the countryside or maybe, uh, you know, off into a distant field and do the same thing. But uh, that's far more dangerous at the mm-hmm. time. And uh, just as a historical note for the people who are saying – I know there's someone saying this right now, Scott. For the people who are thinking that these balloons were suicide missions because they would be shot down, we have to also keep in mind that the artillery and the firearms of the soldiers during the Civil War – were woefully inaccurate mm-hmm. often. That's right. Yeah. So it was, uh, you, you had a better chance than you would think just mm-hmm. floating there above the, uh, above the scene. Um, actually you're, you know, if you're several hundred feet up, that's not so bad because, you know, this war was fought within feet of each other. You know, the, the men on the ground were fighting within 10 feet of each other sometimes or mm-hmm. even less, you know, hand to hand was common. So, um, it's not really that uncommon for a balloon pilot to, uh, have many, many, many successful missions. Yes, and uh, this is an interesting story. I'd I'd like to hear the uh, stuff you missed in history class, folks. Maybe cover the balloon core at some yeah, point. That'd it be would pretty be interesting. interesting. Yeah. Uh, so we have a very speaking of interesting people, we have a very interesting uh, German aristocrat. Ah, yes. Visits Thaddeus, right? Yeah, and this is uh, this is really key to uh, what we call airships, really, mm-hmm. uh, because as we'll talk in a moment, their airships are slightly different than balloons, actually. Considerably different than balloons. Uh, but someone by the name, I uh, actually, you know, what happened was that, you know, news of, of how well these balloons were doing in war and how uh, great, the great advantage that they, they uh, posed, um, made it to Europe and the Prussian army sent someone named, uh, Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin. And, uh, we'll just call him von Zeppelin from this point or Zeppelin. How about that? That sounds awesome. Zeppelin. Yeah, that is cool. Um, so anyways, he, he decided to come over and see what he could, you know, kind of learn from this kind of warfare that the, uh, the United States had developed. I, well, I guess, I don't know, can you say developed the, they, the way they're using it, the, the way they're using it, the way they applied this technology. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, it, it turned out to be very valuable to him. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, so Zeppelin comes over, uh, as, as you said, Scott, to, uh, SC Lowe's balloon camp and he is, Sold. Yep. He drinks the Kool Aid, as it were. Blown and, away. Yeah, and blown away on a balloon. Mm-hmm. And he oh, says, yeah. "Guidable balloons 
uh, will become the future of aviation. Ah, guidable. Now that's that's the key that, word yeah. because until this point, you know, you're at the at the mercy of the wind, and a lot of these were taken down by high winds at altitude, which they they really didn't understand at the time because some of these balloons were were swept away in 100 mile an hour winds that weren't you know on the ground. It's, had no, it's a relatively no way calm to tell. day. He had no idea that 500 feet up, the winds are so strong. Mm-hmm. Um, they were often uh, tethered to locomotives or tugboats to be moved uh, from location to location. So um, you know, that's the only way that they were able to be brought from spot to spot with any kind of um, consistency or accuracy, I should mm-hmm. say, because otherwise you were just floating – uh, you know, at the whim of the wind. Right. You could control your height, but you could not control anything else. That's right. And even that was a little bit difficult at the time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, th- that brings us, I think, to, um, you know, what, what, uh, Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, mm-hmm. uh, decided was the way to go is, is what we call the airship. Yes. And by the 1870s, he had begun working on designs for a rigid airship. Mm-hmm. And uh, during some of this time, he consulted with Lowe about how to build these. Uh, so today we still call these sorts of airships that he was working on Zeppelins. Mm-hmm. Uh, by 1898, he had begun constructing his very first airship, uh, the LZ-1. We should, Before we go into that, we should maybe talk about the different types of airships. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm looking at right now because okay. I've, I've got a diagram in front of me from the uh, – U.S. Centennial of Flight Commission, mm-hmm. and uh, they d- describe the airship as three different ships, really. And uh, there's a non-rigid airship, which is what we know as a blimp. Yeah, uh, meaning it has no structure, I- internal structure, uh, but it does have a gondola. It does have an engine. It has elevator flaps and rudders, mm-hmm. but it does have uh, what they call balloonettes inside. It's yeah. separate packets that, uh, like uh, pouches inside, that carry um, the gases. I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the uh, semi-rigid airship, which um, this is the kind that they use for reconnaissance. This mm. is uh, this is the kind that um, you know they float up and they, they use it to um, you know s- scour the uh, enemy lines, enemy fronts for um, any th- anything nefarious that's going on. And uh, this is the one that they mount cameras in and you know relay messages. But um, it also has a gondola for for passengers. Um, has a gas bag inside. Mm-hmm. Um, has engine compartments, of course, elevator flaps, rudders, that type of stuff. But um, it doesn't have a rigid structure. And when you want to talk about, uh, I guess, one of the airships with a rigid structure, which is what we call Zeppelin now, yeah, um, or actually always have. That's what uh, this one. This is the one with the steel and aluminum girders inside. This mm-hmm. is the one with the heavy, heavy frame inside. Mm-hmm. Not too heavy though. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, it's, a, it's more of a framework than, than the others. And it does have a gondola. It has a rigid structure, the, the rudders and flaps and, mm-hmm. you know, all the necessary stuff for, for flight, including engines. There's a, a scene in an Indiana Jones film where you can get a great look at the inside of a rigid airship. Really? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think it's the last crusade. Hmm. Okay. Uh, they're on an airship, uh, and it's during the, um, Nazi World War II mm-hmm. period. Well, honestly, this this one. I mean, I, I don't remember that scene. I gotta I gotta really think back to the inside of the airship. Huh? Yeah, yeah, because they're uh, Indiana Jones and his father are trying to leave uh, Germany, I think, mm-hmm. on an airship, and then there's a fight scene. I believe that's true. And somebody somehow they yeah. get up into the balloon. Of course, 
Of course, because it's a film, you know. <laughs> so, you know, honestly, you mentioned that, you know, they're trying to leave on an airship. Well, mm-hmm. as it turns out, this this rigid type of airship is really the only one that is capable of moving a lot of people and a lot of cargo at, at a certain time because of the yeah. structure. It's just it's it's sound enough to do that. The others mm-hmm. are not. So um, that that's the reason that the Zeppelins are the ones that we find making long-distance flights later. Right. Yes, absolutely. So uh, to go to our 1898 uh, first airship, the LZ-1, this thing is uh, setting a lot of the standards that we later see refined mm-hmm. but still adhered to in later rigid airships. Uh, this ship is about 420 feet long. Uh, it's about 39 feet in diameter. You might hear different numbers on that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it contains approximately 400,000 cubic feet of hydrogen. Uh, but here's, here's the thing. It's powered by two engines in the metal, in metal gondolas. They're four cylinder engines and they each only make about 15 horsepower. Isn't that something? And it's amazing when you think it doesn't take that much of a push, huh? That's a, that's an enormous ship being powered by what, about 28 horsepower? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yes, sir. Is that right? Are there two engines? I don't, yeah, I don't there's know two. how many engines You're right. there are. There, there are two, and so it's a grand total of 28 to 30 horsepower. And you know what? If you ever, if you look up some of these photos, it had a floating hangar. Did you notice this? <laughs> it floats on top of the water, and and this is the strangest looking thing ever. But you can find historic photos that show this thing in the hangar, mm-hmm. uh, barely fits in there. It looks like a giant floating barn, and uh, th- there's just some really neat old Zeppelin photos out yeah. there that you can take a look at. But it'll give you an idea of of kind of where they came from and where they went to later, because there's some pretty snazzy looking ones later in the 1930s I'd say. Yes, sir. That's uh, that's to me that's one of the golden ages. And, and you know what? You know these. LZ1 through, uh, you know, they, they went up LZ2, 3, yeah. 4. Um, the designs, they continued to improve. They got bigger. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they required a, you know, a lot bigger, um, hangar facilities. They required more people to help them land. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just got a little bit more and more complex as, as the design went along. And I'm sure that, you know, they got, they became, uh, much more structurally sound. Yeah. Um, faster. Maybe even quieter. I don't know. You know, with, uh, when you're talking about passengers and cargo and things like that, maybe, you know, mostly passengers are concerned mm-hmm. with that, not so much cargo. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm, it's, it's just kind of fascinating to see the, the evolution of these things between, let's say, uh, the late 1800s and uh, 1930. Up to the 1930s. To, yeah. And so nowadays it's very easy for us in the, in, in the modern times to look back and say that it's a terrible idea to hop into a, an airship that is Completely filled mm-hmm. with flammable gas. Yeah, I mean, yeah, when you're talking about like the uh, like the Graf Zeppelin or something like mm-hmm. that, which was just enormous. I mean, uh, take a, again, take take a look at the Graf Zeppelin if you get a chance yeah. online. But um, we're talking about something now that you know. The first one you mentioned had four hundred thousand cubic feet of, right. of gas. Uh, this one had oh boy, this one had seven hundred and fifty thousand cubic feet of volume. Um, so the total volume. Um, that was, I'm sorry, that was just the gaseous fuel. Wow. Fuel only was 750,000 cubic feet. So uh, the total volume of the ship was about 3.7 million cubic feet. That's this enormous. Is, this is a huge ship. So that's a kind of, uh, kind of uh, I don't know, the size to mm-hmm. give you a comparison. I, I don't know how to even describe the size of these things. I mean, we can give you a, uh, a length and diameter. I mean, length, it was 
776 feet on the Graf Zeppelin. It was 100 feet in diameter. Jeez. Um, the engines, now we've stepped up to five 550 horsepower Maybach engines at this point. Yeah, now so, compare that to two four-cylinder. And, yeah, and a top <laughs> speed of 80 miles per hour. That's really moving along. And this is a massive, mm-hmm. massive airship. Huge. Yeah. And, you know, one one quick thing here before we kind of move on to, uh, you know, the, the inevitable we have to talk about here, the, uh, the Hindenburg. Yeah. Um, you'll get this – you get this impression that in the 1930s, there were just Zeppelins flying all over the place, that they were everywhere, that, uh, you know, it was kind of the uh, the thing to – you would see them in big cities just floating overhead all the time. And that's because of, uh, you know, they did make appearances, but when they did – Everybody brought out their camera. Everybody brought out their their uh, film camera, you know, to, sure. to record this. And there's a lot of photograph, you know, from airplanes. You can see photographs of of zeppelins floating over big cities, mm-hmm. and uh, it seems like they're everywhere. But and honestly, it was still a rarity to see a zeppelin. That's a really good point. They're just extensively documented. That's right. Yeah, because it was a big deal when they did fly. And speaking of big deals, we have arrived at the Hindenburg disaster. Mm -hmm. Uh, To everyone riding along with us in this podcast, if you listen to your left, you will hear the uh, terrible sounds. Now, I know I'm I'm sound like I'm making light of it, Um, and I guess I am trying not to be complete downer, but essentially the Hindenburg is 12 stories tall. It's as long as three football fields, and – it is filled with 7 million cubic feet of hydrogen. And you can see the film. It is captured on film. Uh, this detonates at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's evening. It's, mm-hmm. uh, what, 7 o'clock, something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, there's just- – I don't know, some uh, discussion over when it was supposed to really land. It was supposed mm-hmm. to land in the, uh, the afternoon. They, they had um, – it was either going to land at 7 a.m. or 7 p.m., and that was to accommodate the people on the ground that had to help uh, help yeah. land this thing because there's a ground crew involved, and they would hire locals to come out and grab the ropes and, you know, tether this thing down. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of the workday, uh, when people were available to do this, it would be early in the day or early in the evening. And um, they chose the 7 o'clock time, and, you know, there's some rain that day and a little bit of weather disturbance, and they're trying to figure out when to do it. So they did it at 7 p.m. instead of 7 a.m. Um, you know, there were there were a lot of eyewitnesses to this, and this is where you're going to get the famous audio, you know, oh, the humanity. Yes. Um, and there's film of this that, you know, as it, as it happened, ter- terrible, terrible film. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't imagine that anybody survived this thing. Yeah, it's I, fairly I, obvious. I, I don't understand how that happened, but um, honestly, I mean, the the true numbers: thirty six people were killed in the accident. That mm-hmm. means uh, passengers and crew members. How many were on board, Ben? There were there were more oh. than on board. I think there was like ninety eight or ninety nine people on board. Yeah, that's a crazy thing. There were uh, survivors. So there were there were like there were. I don't know, about a third of the people died on board, mm-hmm. but you would think looking at this that everybody perished. There's just no way. Yeah. Because it's not even on the ground yet when it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones that did survive were the ones that jumped from 30, 40, 50 feet up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were injured, of course, but um, – or or they waited it out until it burned away around them and then they got out quickly. I mean, there's, yeah. there's just a uh, – uh, a lot of charts about, you know, who survived and where they were in the, mm-hmm. in the, in the spot and also – a lot of speculation going down in this uh, in this accident. Right? Absolutely. What was some of the uh, some of the tales that have been told? Was it intentional? Yeah. Was it a bomb? 
Was it a bomb? Yeah. Was it an act of terrorism? Now, we need to keep in mind the Hindenburg was built in 1936. Mm-hmm. This is not a Titanic situation, by which I mean this is not a doomed maiden voyage. No. This, uh, the Hindenburg has gone across the Atlantic more than a few times. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it was successful for a long time. Yeah, it's it's flown – by the time the accident happens, it's flown um, a, a little less than 200,000 miles. It's carried thousands of passengers. People are comfortable with this idea. In fact, it's it's really a um, kind of a status symbol, yeah, you know, to be able to pony up our equivalent of like $6,000 to fly on this thing. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I mean, it'd be quite a way to travel, really. I think, and it was, if you see the photos of the gondola inside, it was pretty opulent. I mean, there was a lot, I mean, as, as far as a gondola underneath a balloon, mm-hmm. uh, it was, it was decent. Yeah, it was opulent really nice. too. I like that word yeah. too. So a fire starts near the tail. Yeah. As close as, as close as we can tell. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of spe- – that people thought it was struck by lightning. People thought that right. you know it was a bomb. They thought that it was intentionally set. And they said that maybe it was on a timer that somebody had – you know, a crew member had set the bomb and then it went off you know, like one minute too early because the the uh, the flight was delayed a bit, you know, the landing because of the right. weather. Um, so they thought maybe you know, it was intended to go off and harm no one but you know, more of a um, – um, you know, this, we're destroying the airship, uh, this mm-hmm. German airship. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of speculation about what really happened. I don't know if we're ever going to really dig into this because we've heard, we've heard that it was coated with thermite. We've heard that yeah. it was, uh, but you know what? It, as it turns out, the, the mixtures, they, they know what they coated the in- interior with. That was documented. Mm-hmm. And the mixtures aren't correct for something like that, for an explanation like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a, uh, an article here that has, you can look at look this up. There's, uh, five myths about the Hindenburg crash. Um, you know, there's static electricity, the sabotage, this anti-Nazi, um, um, sentiment that was happening at the time. Right. Um, but it's honestly the, the, the end result of all of this is that most likely the truth will never be known because of just, it's, it's happened so long ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with the investigative, abilities that we have now we wouldn't be able to determine it you know from what's left right any evidence that was uh that was around is likely heavily deteriorated if we could find it if we could find it because it burned up i mean this thing ben this thing was five city blocks long mm-hmm. it's it's enormous it's huge like you know the other zeppelins and it took it i think it was about 33 seconds for it to completely burn to the ground Mm-hmm. Done. I mean, it's super fast. It's as as fast as you see it on the on the film. That's as fast as it happened. It didn't. It didn't. Uh, it didn't delay at all in in its destruction. Yeah, that's not a weird time lapse or something. No, no, no. And you know, the reporter. I'm sorry, I got one more quick yeah. thing here. But the uh, the reporter that we hear so often of uh, um, his name is Herbert Morrison, the radio announcer. Yeah, the radio announcer. Now he, uh, you know, he was just kind of working that uh, working that. Um, Landing just as he would normally, you know, reporting it for the news agency yeah. he's worked with, and uh, you know, to, boy, to be a witness to something like this. I mean, if you listen to the uh, to the broadcast, and and you know, you can get a transcript of this. I just printed out a transcript of it. It's it's mm. actually longer than what you usually hear. Right, you usually just hear the one or two parts. Yeah, exactly, and and it goes goes on for quite some time. But he's really distraught about the whole thing. I mean, obviously so. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's also some kind of strangeness about the recording itself that. Um, it was sped up because his recorder ran apparently a couple of, uh, you know, just a little bit slow. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if it's weather related or if it was just the machine itself, but, um, they've adjusted it because this guy was known for his deep voice. So they've adjusted it to what it really would sound like. And it's slightly, I don't know how to put it, Ben. It's, it's, it's almost like it's more dramatic when he's got that higher pitch and faster read 
uh, because it seems more like, um, and it's a bad way to say it, but more exciting. Yeah, more, more dramatic, more emotionally. Yeah, charged. but it still is. It's still you know rather. It's very very emotional. This whole thing, yeah. even even slowed down, but you don't get the benefit of hearing the entire thing slowed down. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting that someone's you know paid attention to what he sounded like before and adjusted because this is just a, a bad field recorder. And the reason we've told you uh, these details about the Hindenburg is because this disaster uh, spelled the end of the golden age Mm -hmm. of the Zeppelin or the rigid airship. However, you know that we never want to bring you guys down unless we're bringing you back up. There are still airships aplenty around. Yes, that's right. And you'll probably see them floating over sporting events and things like that. (laughs) Mostly we have blimps left anymore. Uh Um, You know, one quick, one more quick thing. Mm -hmm. It was around 1940, um, just before the second world war that um, a lot of the blimps were, a lot of the Zeppelins were destroyed. Mm-hmm. They were, uh, you know, because it just seemed like that was not the way to go at the time. They decided to cannibalize them for the materials in order to feed the war machine. Yes. Um, so, you know, you'll you'll see a lot of them just have vanished, disappeared. They're not even around as relics anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we mentioned blimps. And uh, who do you think of when I say blimp? Goodyear. Yeah, Goodyear. You know what? And here's the shocker. Goodyear right now, they, they only have three blimps in – in the U.S., okay, and they've got um, a few others uh, worldwide, but in their history, they've produced more than 300 airships, Ben. No way, really? Yeah, 300 airships. Now, I don't know if that includes, you know, some of these uh, semi-rigid structures or rigid mm-hmm. structures, but um, they were produced uh, mostly for military purposes around World War II. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. But I, I just hadn't thought of, you know, these additional ships that they produced. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, we typically think of them as, you know, sporting events and recreational yeah. activities and things like that. It's not really the, the purpose behind the original ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, make no mistake. These definitely th- – this technology came about uh, as a military application mm-hmm. primarily. Yeah, they've got three – um, in existence right now in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got the Spirit of the Goodyear, which is uh, based in Akron, Ohio. they got the Spirit of Innovation, which is in uh, Pompano Beach, California. Spirit of America, which is in Los Angeles, California. And in China, they've got one called the Navigator. Um, and uh, let's see. Hmm. Well, anyways, yeah, we've got some information about the blimp rides if you want to hear about this because – yeah, yeah, I would love to ride into Goodyear blimps. Oh man, I would love to ride in any blimp. Before uh, I've I've also got some information. Just a, a quick rundown of the parts of a blimp. Oh yeah, can I go through that real oh, quick? Of course, we'll just do that. Okay, yeah. so that big uh, the big bulbous part of it is called the envelope, and that is of course the large uh, non rigid container for the helium gas. It's usually a cigar shape. And uh, it's usually made of a kind of synthetic polyester composite. So helium gas. We've gone from, hel- uh, from hydrogen, hydrogen to, helium. to helium. Yes, just Very so. smart. And uh, it's funny because uh, one of the companies that makes a lot of these uh, these envelopes also makes spacesuits for NASA. Oh, makes sense. So then there's also, uh, if you've got a picture or diagram of Blimp, you can check out our article to get a closer look and read along. Um there are these things called nose cone battens, and they come – you'll see them radiating from the tip of the blimp. So what they do is provide a sort of structure to keep the front of the blimp um, sort of stiffened and make sure that it's not damaged or punctured mm-hmm. when it's moored up. Uh, oh, OK. When they, when they tie it up. Right, and, is this kind of like – is that kind of like a, uh, a frame to a tent? 
Yes. Is that kind of like what that would be? That's a good idea. Sim- yeah, yeah. Okay. Sim- similar to the idea. It's on the – yeah, it is because it's on the outside. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah good call. Um, balloonettes are what uh, you were talking about earlier, Scott, the small bags of gas inside the envelope. Mm-hmm. So so it's divvied up. Um now, because the air is heavier than hel- because air is heavier than helium, these are deflated or inflated with air to control the ascension and descension of the blimp. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they've got, of course, uh, they've got c- curtains called catenary curtains that run along the length of the blimp and uh, suspension cables that uh, attach these curtains to the gondola. So it'll these curtains help give the the envelope of shape, suspend the gondola. Um, they have some stiff movable parts of the blimp that are called flight control surfaces. These are on the tail. So this is like the rudders and the elevators. The elevators control the angle or the pitch axis, I guess, if you're familiar with uh, mm-hmm. aircraft. And uh, yes, and the uh, rudder steers it to uh, along the yaw axis. Um, and there are two engines typically. Uh, they give you thrust, of course. Uh, now these engines are turbo propeller airplane engines. Uh, they're air cooled. They use typical gasoline. They're several hundred horsepower. That, ah, that does vary. Yeah, they are strong. And, um, they can typically cruise at about 30 to 70 miles an hour. So, Not uh, bad. Yeah, so and then of course the gondola, which is my favorite part, it's where you hold the uh, passengers and crew. Usually that's two pilots up to 12 crews. Um the Eagle and Stars and Stripes of Goodyear each hold uh, two pilots and six passengers. Oh, that's not many. Yeah, but we can get a ride on them. Is what I'm saying. Well, but, oh, can you though? Yeah. No, we'll see, see here's the reason. Are you are you, are you I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah, the reason is, and I didn't know this, that rides are arranged and rides on the Goodyear blimp are only arranged by invitation only. You have to be invited by the company itself. So, um, you know, the people that end up going up in these things are, you know, local dignitaries and press and mm-hmm. um, contest winners. You know, you can win a contest to get a ride in the Goodyear blimp over a certain event. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think would be really, really cool. Or, or maybe host of an internet car show. Oh, maybe. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That would be really cool too. But, um, you know, I, I didn't know that it was that exclusive. I knew that, you know, there wasn't much room. And I've seen people, because there's kind of like a big ship's wheel almost that you steer. Yeah. That, yeah that you yeah. kind of use your whole arm to move this thing backward and forward. And it's, it, the controls are really neat. And I think I'd, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to give it a shot. Yeah. I'd like to get a closer <laughs> look at it because. Yeah. It's got to be an art form to fly. I would think so. And you know, there's others around. There's the MetLife balloon and there's, sure, uh, you absolutely. Know, I, I don't know, some of the other ones that are out mm-hmm. there. Um, you know, one thing that I, I think we maybe missed along the way that I, and I'm, I've been frantically looking through my notes. You probably <laughs> have heard me shuffling over here, but, um, I, and I don't have it in front of me, but there's something called Blau gas. And that was used early on in the Zeppelins. And, and then what this was, did was it was what, it was the fuel for the, for the vehicle so that, if you imagine this, that, you know, when you were powering the, the Zeppelins with gasoline, as you consumed material, you'd become lighter. Ah, yes. So the, the, you'd need to adjust. It would, it would rise. And, um, you know, there's, there needed to be a way to adjust this. And it turned out that this blau gas that could be burned also had about the same weight as air. 
Okay. And so that as it was consumed, it really made very little difference in the weight of the ship. Mm-hmm. So it really didn't affect, um, you know, the height of the ship, the, the uh, altitude of the ship. That's so ingenious. I thought that was, that was kind of an ingenious thing that they had done along the way because, you know, the early ones, you know, you had to drop off sandbags or whatever you were carrying with you. Mm-hmm. Um, or, boy, I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm just not that good at, uh, determining how like modern, even modern balloons really work. I mean, it, it seems <laughs> kind of, it seems kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's a, a shot in the wind, really. I mean, as far as, as far as if you're going to be able to make it to a certain location on time. I know they have chase cars. I know they carry additional gas, you know, that so they need yeah. to, you know, to, to, you know, get themselves over trees or power lines mm-hmm. or whatever, but just seems a little bit strange to me to, uh, to let yourself be carried by the wind for such a great distance. It seems dicey. I'll it, be honest with yeah, you. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, um, we should also make the point that these, these blimps are a lot safer now precisely because they use helium. Mm-hmm. Uh, since helium, of course, is not flammable, it's a lot harder to imagine a Hindenburg type, uh, a Hindenburg type situation. Correct. Yeah. N- not a lot harder, I guess, but it's less likely. And, uh, I agree with you, Scott. No matter how buoyant or safe or how many cross checks there are, uh, I would be just a little bit, a, a little bit uncomfortable. And, and it's so, it's so weird to me. It's such a case of cognitive dissonance because I'm fine in an airplane, buddy. Yeah. You know, I'm totally all about flying my, uh, in airplanes. My, my dad a couple of years ago took a uh, balloon ride. Kind uh-huh. of, it was a gift. That's and, beautiful, um, man. he took a, he took a short balloon ride, you know, just through Michigan mm-hmm. and, uh, relatively low. You know, they're just above the treetops, kind of floating through and you're floating. At the, this is, this is really strange. This is probably the strangest thing he told me about the whole experience. Um, you know, and, and of course it's very safe. He was, he felt safe the entire time. There, there's a lot of advances in, in this and everything is really well, well done. Mm-hmm. Um, the operators were good. So he, he's coding, cruising, uh, cruising along at, um, at, at, you know, wind speed, I guess you would call it, right? Sure. Just above the, the treetops. And you can see people in their backyard on decks and things like that, you know, barbecuing, talking, whatever. The strangest thing about this, and I didn't know this, is that he said he could hear people in their yards talking. And I don't know if that has something to do with you matching the exact speed of the wind or what. Oh, weird. Because it yeah. be, he said it's, it's absolutely perfectly still up there. You don't feel any wind because the wind would be moving you at the same speed. So it's perfectly still, and, and the conditions are just right that you're able to hear things for long distances. So, you know, somebody's saying something to each other sitting mm-hmm. on a deck, you know, from chair to chair, he can hear it. Wow. Isn't that amazing? It is. And it, it just further, I think, underlines and highlights how how well suited this kind of stuff is for surveillance. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, if you're going to, you, know, sur- you know, surveil somebody from 50 feet above or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I have this picture of some of these Two people in the Civil War or something, you know, two generals in the Civil War chatting about their secret plans yeah. and just not seeing the balloon. Yeah, they, how would they ever even know to look up, I guess? Right? Yeah, it's a little the, bit. The intrepid it, floats by. Yeah, it's a little bit tough to, uh, tough to swallow, but, yeah. um, yeah, so that's, that's what I've got. Yeah, me too. Books. I mean, I, I think it was, you know, the, the time of the Zeppelins was really pretty interesting and, and mm-hmm. I would love to have seen some of these Zeppelins in flight. I think mm-hmm. it would have been really cool. So, um, I think we, we got it covered here. We went from yeah. the, the very first balloon all the way through, uh, well, modern blimps. Yeah. And we worked in, uh, we worked in a couple of conspiracy theories, like a couple in yeah. the way here. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you though, as we end this, this is something I've been thinking about. 
what do you think what what would you think rather if zeppelins made a comeback if mm. rigid airships became maybe not the norm but were used again do you think there's any possibility oh i don't know i don't think so i think just maybe the uh uh, they're so susceptible to uh, to wind, and they're so susceptible to weather conditions, and mm-hmm. um, there just seems there's far better ways to travel now, faster. You know, people want the, the efficiency of travel. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're talking about just something to do on a on a weekend, you know, take a short trip, like you know, a lot of people take a dinner uh, dinner train, yeah, um, something like that. Yeah, I could see there being a market for something like this. You could sleep on a zeppelin overnight as it uh, just kind of floated around in your okay. state or whatever. Yeah, but. Um, I don't know. As far as like real uses for travel, I, I don't think people are going to go for it. You know, I hate to say it, Scott. I'm probably on the same page with you there, but for a little bit of a different reason, they just seem so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think that vulnerability is the large determining factor in their uh, lack of success and expansion now. Yeah. It's so. kind of sad that we have to think like that, isn't it? That they're vulnerable. It is. And it's not just weather. There's other things that, you know, we'll, we'll not mention, but, sure. uh, but that's, it's too bad we have to think that way because it would be, it would be a fun trip, I think. I mean, mm. I don't know what the conditions would be like, but I'm assuming that it would be a lot like a cruise ship. Yeah, the photo opportunities alone, you know. Incredible. So we also really want to know what you guys think about airships, especially if you're just feeling charitable when it comes to blimp rides. Uh, Scott and I are in the market. Uh, you can tell us about it on Facebook and Twitter. You can find out, uh, you can learn more about blimps rather, uh, by checking out how blimps work on our awesome website. And if you have an idea for an upcoming topic you'd like to hear on our show, give us an email at carstuff at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fairs. Discover more at viking.com. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you're committed to living a healthier life, you might want to look into working herbs into your wellness routine. There's a reason people have trusted them for thousands of years. Nature's Way understands that nature is the ultimate problem solver, and they're constantly inspired by the power of nature. For example, their ginger root and slippery elm bark have been traditionally used for digestive support. And St. John's wort, holy basil, and ashwagandha can provide mood and stress support. And because Nature's Way sources from around the world and does a ton of comprehensive potency and quality testing in their state-of-the-art lab, you can be sure you're getting top-quality herbs. To learn more, visit naturesway.com.